0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Providence. My name is Lauren Schreiber, and um, I serve at Providence as the director of the Providence Road Academy, and we just want to welcome you this morning. We are so glad that you are with us, and if this is your first time at Providence, we are glad that you chose um, to gather with us this morning, uh, Providence is a group of people formed around a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so, just like every Sunday this morning, we are going to open our Bibles because we believe um, that our Bibles have been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. And so, this morning we are actually going to be concluding a series that we have been in since the beginning of the year, um, where we have been walking through the Book of Mark and we have been studying the life of Jesus, but also in particular talking about how our culture tries to find its identity outside of Christ. So um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16 this morning, and we're going to read verses 14 through 20. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you didn't bring a hard copy of the Bible, but you'd prefer to be in one, we do have some Bibles under seats that you can grab so you can read along. Um, Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16. So when you're there, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? They will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Good morning everyone. Good morning, good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church and if it's your first time I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here and we hope you enjoy yourself uh, this morning. We are going to be, as Lauren said, finishing up our work through the book of Mark that we've been uh, really checking through the whole book this entire year. So this is a culminating sermon at the very end of the book of Mark, the last few verses. This is one of those sermons that. Uh, I want to pray together before we jump in, and for obvious reasons, we always pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word as he has promised to, but I particularly also want to pray that the Lord would help me because this passage has so much packed into it that kind of ties a bow neatly around what we've been doing for a year now, and I just know I I want to try and articulate it well. Um, I know my own frailties in that. I want to ask the Lord to help because there's just so much to talk about, so little time. I'm going to try to skip some of the things that I said last sermon because I ended up, I don't know, like a halfway through my notes, and then I was like getting the Academy Awards music because I had to leave. So, um, If you guys will bow your heads, I want to pray. I want to ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll just jump right in. Father, we thank you, first and foremost, that we have the great privilege to come before you now to worship you in spirit and in truth, that we have a place to do so. We thank you, my God, that we have the freedom to do so, and we ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears, that we might hear from your word. Thank you that your word has been preserved for us, that it's true, and that we can we can go to your word and find you there. Father, I specifically ask that you might help me as I seek to articulate even just a, a shred of the beauty and the glory that's found in the pages of your word in this specific passage And in particular, God, help me as I seek to articulate the the theological vision of your redemptive plan that was manifested at the cross and at the resurrection and here at the ascension. God, I ask that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit to go and to make disciples, but to have a, a greater and grander vision for the purpose of our lives now that we have been born again, that we have been enlisted by you and that the life that we now lead in you is greater than we ever had before or that we could ever imagine so help us now as we open your word minister to us that we might experience the grace of the 30 60 100-fold harvest you've promised we ask these things in Jesus good name amen amen so let's just kick right off remember we're we're picking up where Jesus has been raised from the grave taking his own life up again and a handful have seen him. So he has revealed himself to a handful of people. And we're picking up where the most famous, I would say, uh, passages of the Gospels are centered at the Passion Week. And this is one of them, the Great Commission. Jesus reveals himself to the 11. Obviously, it used to be the 12. Judas has gone to do what Judas did, and now there's 11, and he commissions them. He tells them to go. Even as he was sent, he's sending them. And this is that passage. So let's just pick up right where we left off last week. Verse 14. So Jesus starts off by showing up in what other Gospels tell us is a locked room, by the way. He comes into the locked room where they're reclining a table and says, hey, why have you guys not been believing? Now, I want to make mention, I gave the girls a hard time last week. They weren't at women's retreat. It just so happened the passage set me up to make fun of them a small bit. But here's where Jesus rebukes the men for not listening to the women. He said, hey, the women showed up. They said, we saw Jesus. And you're like... Couldn't be so. You know, she must be emotional. Or whatever they may have said. They didn't believe them, that they actually saw Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them for this. And then he goes into the Great Commission. He says, You need to go into all of creation and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Now, why is it significant that he says all of creation? If you didn't listen to our sermon last week, I encourage you to. The theme for most commentators of the book of Mark is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's the exclamation that the centurion gives after Jesus breathes his last and there begins to be earthquakes and great signs. But we titled the series King and Crown because ultimately what I see here is that Christ being the son of God also in turn has earned the title as the king of all creation that he's not just the king of the Jews, he's not just the king of the nations, but he's the king of all creation as the rightful son and heir. So he sends us out to preach what message? The gospel, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ as Lord. But there's a key to this passage, these first three verses. There's a a pattern that Jesus is teaching his disciples to follow. They should believe and then obey. That's the pattern. That's the important chronology as well. Believe and then obey. So whether it's believe and then proclaim, or believe and then be baptized, or the belief is first, and then the obedience. Why is this essential? Because up into this moment, all human religions, every single offering of human religion had been that there was an obedience to God that had to be rendered. And if inevitably, as human beings were fallen, there was disobedience. There had to be a sacrifice made in order to be accepted back again. And the gospel offers this entirely different idea, namely that Jesus was perfectly obedient and a perfect sacrifice. And the Christian is called to believe that in faith or by faith in him, that we share in his perfection. We share in that atonement. We share in that union with God. And then we are obedient from a place of forgiveness from a place of sonship from a place of daughterhood from a place of forgiveness from a place of justification that is on the basis of Christ we believe and then we obey if we get that order inverted then all of our obedience ultimately looks like pagan practice trying to earn our keep with the God who's already done what needs to be done so he rebukes them for their unbelief and then he tells them believe and then go and proclaim believe and then go and obey now why do I harp on this Well, because I want to make the point that here the Great Commission is not a New Testament idea. Although the New Covenant is giving us something new or else it wouldn't have been called new. I want to make the case that the Great Commission is a restatement. It's a revisitation of the cultural mandate that was given by God to Adam. The second Adam is now giving us a restatement of something that God said in the beginning. So the king of creation who's earned this crown through the cross and resurrection is now going back to creation and restating something that God had already said to Adam and Eve in the garden. I want to read Genesis chapter one, verse 28. You don't have to turn there. If you don't want to, it's going to be right behind me. It's one verse. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve directly after the creation of male and female in his image. He says this, if you ever wondered like, what are we supposed to be doing on the earth? Well, here's the original mandate. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve being these vice regents of God, we could say kings and queens, image bearers of God, are sent out into the creation and they're supposed to do a handful of things. They're supposed to fill the earth, multiply, have children, have other image bearers, so multiply more image bearers, and exercise dominion in the earth. Now, how does this end up going wrong? Well, the Bible tells us very explicitly the original sin is not merely getting hungry enough to eat an apple you shouldn't eat, okay? This is not like the child who's hungry enough to eat the cookies they were forbidden from. The original sin is unbelief. We know this Because in the garden, what we see is that our first mother, Eve, is confronted by the serpent and she is asked a simple question. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of this tree and you'll die? And Eve's response, knowing, so she she adds a little bit to it, but she's right. Yes, we shouldn't do that. God said that we would die. We'd surely die. We can't even touch it. And then there's this moment, the proposition of unbelief. The serpent offers, you won't surely die. If you eat of this, your eyes will be opened. That's a half truth. Their eyes were opened and you will be like God's. You'll be like him. Instead, our eyes were opened, and what were they open to? Our own shame and our own diminishment. The likeness that we had as image bearers of God is now greatly diminished. And it's all on the basis of what? This unbelief. We believed the serpent's words over God's words. Now, this is manifest throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. The consistent sin of Israel is what? Is it idolatry? Yes, of course. Is it sexual immorality? Yeah, that's there too that uh, all sorts of debauchery that manifests itself throughout the Bible. Yeah, multiple wives, like Solomon, for instance, the, kind of the king of uh, Israel at the height of its glory. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's not exactly a pure situation going on in the palace. But what's this, this central sin of Israel? It's a sin of unbelief. It's typified in the wilderness when the children of Israel grumble against their God and say, there's no way we can go into the promised land the people are too tall, the giants will destroy us. These are the same people that had just seen God single handedly, not with any help, take down the greatest empire the world had ever seen by multiple plagues and drowned all of their army in the sea. And Moses didn't do much except for bring a stick with him and do what God told him to do with the stick. That was it. But yet they did not believe. Now I wish I had more time to speak of this, but Jesus shows up and brings us to this simple idea, this very the simplicity of the gospel is what? Taking God at his word, the question is around belief. Do we trust God? Do we believe what God has said to be true? The gospel that Jesus tells the disciples to proclaim, they must first believe. It must first be applied. And the reason for this is because we cannot be empowered to accomplish this great and supernatural mission until we have experienced it. We cannot offer water until we've tasted of the water. We cannot actually be preachers of the gospel until we are partakers of the gospel. And the gospel message that Jesus offers is that he has personally undone everything that was done in the garden with our first parents. And now he is recommissioning us with that same call that God originally had for us, to go out, be fruitful, multiply, exercise dominion. It's being restated. And it's unique now because why? Well, at Providence, listen, I'm not saying that we don't still continue to have children physically. You guys are doing a great job at that, by the way. Okay, we're really, we're nailing it on that front. Okay, but hear me, the new covenant mandate shifts in that it, this is why Jesus uses the analogy of being born again. The multiplication of this new kingdom will be that there will be, new children that are born spiritually. This will happen through the proclaiming of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. They'll be born again and this will multiply across the earth. The kingdom will be manifest. That's the primary multiplication. And also that families, as we multiply physically, those children will be raised up and be told that their heritage is Christ and they will also be baptized and the kingdom will expand in this way. But it's not merely this born-again experience, not merely multiplication. I want you to notice, it wasn't just that Adam and Eve would make sure that they multiplied and had a bunch of kids. There was a question of dominion. Go out exercising dominion in the earth. Christ is coming and saying the dominion that Adam had willfully given away, he has now gained through the cross and resurrection. All authority has been given to him again. Now, in his name, go out and exercise dominion again. Central to the new covenant mandate is the new covenant message. If we do not understand what Christ has done for us on the cross and receive it first in and of ourselves, the new covenant mandate, the great commission cannot be fulfilled. This is why Jesus told the disciples do not go out until you receive power from on high. He says, don't go out and do anything. Don't go out and preach the gospel until what? Till Pentecost. Why? Because they needed to be empowered through Christ, who is ascended to the right hand of the Father by sending the Spirit. First believe, then obey. Now, we're going to get into this portion of the scripture, which a lot of people have, uh, there's been some quirky things to come out of here. I didn't bring any snakes today to handle, and I have not brought strychnine to prove my, uh, I guess, my fidelity as a true preacher. But I want to talk about this because this is, uh, there's some signs that are mentioned here, and all of them have both Their fulfillment in the New Testament, and and also they have a symbolic meaning for us to gain a broader theological vision for what it means for us as Christians right now. What are we doing beyond merely, let's say, going to church? Beyond merely just you know watching our mouths and and you know watching the you know Blue Angel vids and not watching the bad movies. Christianity, our vision is larger than this, guys. What God's called us to is larger. So let's start here, verse seventeen. Jesus himself says, these signs will accompany those who believe. Notice everything is centered around faith. Okay? If they believe, there's going to be this uniqueness to them. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Those are the four things that Jesus mentions. Now, all of these we find In both the book of Acts and in early church history, I'm going to read the uh, story of one of them in particular because it gives us the most obvious example of what the signs were used for and what they still should be used for. But for instance, the exercising of demons. Yes, we see Jesus, particularly in the book of Mark, doing this constantly. So did the disciples after Jesus was raised. For instance, Paul walks into a town and a young woman, we're going to read about it in a minute, she's possessed with a demon that actually makes money for her master because she can do fortune telling and divination. Paul casts this demon out and then immediately is arrested because the man is so offended that he's lost all of his money. But he does so in the name of Christ. The speaking with new tongues starts in Acts chapter 2 in the, book, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and it continues throughout the book. This idea of God unifying language and hearers of language. We'll talk about that in a moment what about the vipers, the snakes? Well, there's this story actually in the book of Acts where Paul is on a ship on his way imprisoned to Rome and he gets shipwrecked at an island called Malta. He begins to build a fire at the island of Malta and it says the viper jumps out of the fire and fastens itself to his hand. All of the island natives say this man must be very wicked even though he escaped prison and the sea. Now the gods have sent a viper to kill him. The Bible records that Nothing happens to Paul. He shakes off the snake into the fire and keeps building it. And as they show that, as they see that his hand doesn't even swell and he keeps doing, then they revert to the exact opposite. They say, this man must be a god. And so then they try to worship him. And Paul says, no, you don't need to worship me. And then he shares the gospel with them. The poison in particular is the one that's not mentioned specifically in the book of Acts, but it is mentioned in early church history, the most famous of which is the tradition that John, before he is sent to the island of Patmos, John, the one who wrote Revelation, the disciple is, by the emperor Domitian, he's put in a vat of boiling oil as a martyr to be killed. And as he's in this vat of burning oil, and they're raising the temperature up, he just continues to preach and is unharmed by it. So Domitian, being upset by this, throws him into the prison cell, and the tradition says that he was slipped poison to kill him silently because Oftentimes, poison was used in the ancient world to, to kill off your political enemies. Kings would have cupbearers for this reason. You ever notice that? The cupbearer's got to be one of the worst jobs, by the way, especially if you've got a bad emperor. It's like you're, <laughs> you're just kind of rolling through these cast of guys, right? Um, which is what Nehemiah was, by the way, in the Old Testament. He was a cupbearer to the king. His whole job is taste the food and the drink to make sure it's not going to poison the king because that was a way to end your political enemies. Early Christians were often poisoned because their message was so um, revolutionary that they didn't like that these Christians were, well, they were, they were overturned certain parts of society. For instance, like Paul preaching against the idols in Ephesus and what happened. The whole city's economy turned upside down because most of it was built on idol worship. And so they got pretty upset at Paul for this very reason. So, the Bible says that John himself drinks this poison in the prison cell and nothing happens to him. That's why they exiled him to Patmos because they can't kill him off. So they just say, get him out of here. And then, of course, the laying on the hands of sick, I could pick any from the book of Acts. Maybe the most famous is Acts chapter 3. Peter's at the beautiful gate. The man with lame feet says, please, do you have any alms that you can give to me? And Peter says to him, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. Rise and walk in the name of Jesus Christ, and he's healed. This happens pretty regularly in the book of Acts. Now... The question we have to ask is, well, first of all, we need to say this emphatically. Jesus said this is the signs that will accompany, and then the very next book that isn't a gospel in your Bible shows you that exactly what Jesus said happened, okay? So that's the first thing. Second of all, what are the purpose of the signs? Why do the signs exist? A lot of people have different thoughts on this, but I just want to tell you, you do not have to look far. In this passage, the Bible tells you why the signs exist. Listen to verse number 20. It says, they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. What did he do? He confirmed the message by accompanying them with signs. What do the signs do? They confirm the message of the gospel. That's what the signs were always meant to do. Signs are meant to confirm the message of the gospel because at the core, God's major plan of redemption is not merely making sure that we go from uh, being sick to being well, at least not externally, but from being diseased in our spirit to being whole again. It's eternal life. It's belief in the gospel. It's trust in Christ. Signs have a temporary, um, momentary relief effect, whether you be sick or whether you be imprisoned, which we're going to see in a moment here. But the eternal is the gospel message, and the signs are used and leveraged to that end. Signs do not bring self-glorification. They don't bring self-exaltation. They confirm the authenticity and the power and the dominion of Jesus Christ, which is at the heart of the gospel message. And I want to read this story to you because it's maybe the most clear in how the signs were used in the New Testament. This is Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 16 through 34. This is the story of the woman with the spirit of divination. Okay. Luke is speaking here. He's traveling with Paul, and he says, As we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. I want you to understand how wicked this is. There's there's a man who has a, a woman that he owns as a slave who is demonically possessed and is able to tell fortunes and others pay her for this work and the owner makes much money by her. This woman's enslaved spiritually and physically and is totally being taken advantage of. Now watch what the Bible says. She followed Paul and us crying out, quote, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What's interesting is the demons through her are saying true things. Paul's annoyed by this because he knows that these demons are not saying this for his good, but for his harm. They have no intention of actually bringing glory to God. The demons, much like they say true things to Jesus when they call him the son of the most high, they just want to get out of the circumstances that they're in. They're crafty, evil. Okay, Paul knows this. Verse 18, and this she kept doing for many days. So it's just, at this point, it's becoming, she's interrupting, she's yelling out. He's trying to preach and she's just yelling out all the time. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, you gotta love Paul's, uh, not the greatest motivation for the exorcism, but let's just say it is what happened. Uh, He's annoyed. He turns and says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Okay, so there's the sign, right? In the name of Jesus, unclean spirits are commanded out and they're out. Now watch this. The result here is not exactly what you would expect. When the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in on attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. So just as an idea, I just want to make note of this. I wish I had more time. If you see people doing great signs to make lots of money... And to get lots of fame, you can almost be positive, this is not from the Lord. Because here we see the, the woman who was making money from the spiritual inhabitation was demonic, and the owners were demonic as well in the way they used her. Paul and Silas, they see they utilize the power of the Holy Spirit for good. And you know what they get for it? It is not fame. They don't get they don't get a TBN special, okay? They don't sell for $39.99 like their cloth rag to heal you and all your family members if if you write that one check. That's a recurring check, by the way. You notice what they get is what? They get beaten, they get marred, and then they get their reputation destroyed, and then they get thrown into not just jail. They get thrown into the inner parts of the jail. These guys are treated like Hannibal Lecter. And what did they do? They released this woman from spiritual prison. Okay, but that's not the end of it. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and they were singing hymns to God. As a side note, if you want to know how do you handle suffering as a Christian, this is a good idea. Okay, notice it wasn't, at midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining on Facebook about all the troubles to God, you know, or they were venting to their friends or they were calling their neighbors or they were blaming their family. No, what are they doing? Praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners are intrigued by this. They know how unjust this is. And suddenly, watch this, there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself. Now, listen, that sounds uh, extreme. Not really, if you think about it. All the doors get open. Every cuff, okay, so the real Hannibal Lecters are now uncuffed. All the doors are open. Jailer's by himself now. So he's like, okay, either they're going to run over me and kill me, or even if they let me live... Whenever my bosses show up, they're going to say, where's all the prisoners? And my job was to make sure the prisoners stayed in. They're going to kill me anyway. So he goes to kill himself. Now watch this. This is incredible. It says, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. What kind of authority does Paul have to tell the real Hannibal Lecter's that you're not going anywhere? And they listen. He says, don't do anything. We're not going anywhere. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen any jail movies... You ever seen a prison riot? This is not how it works. There's not like that one studious guy that stands up and says, we will be honorable today and serve our sentences. And all the prisoners are like, yeah, he's right. You know, let's sit back down and just close the doors. What kind of authority does this man have to speak to the criminals and say, hey, we're not going anywhere. Now watch this. And the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Listen to me. Paul hasn't even preached the gospel yet and he's asking for the message that he knows is true. So he has already been confirmed. Whatever you tell me is true, just tell me what it is. You notice this? That's what the signs were used for. They confirmed that whatever was going to come out of this man's mouth, this is what I need to believe because they already were convinced of it by the authority and power of God. This is the purpose of the signs. Now, having said that, my prayer is that we would not only see this supernaturally happening in the book of Acts, but recognize what do the signs symbolically tell us about our vision, the vision that we should have for the Great Commission and how we should be living. Well, I believe the signs give us a symbolic view of Christ's work of redemption through the Great Commission. First of all, I believe the casting out of demons as a sign is a symbol of Christ's dominion over the spiritual realm. We saw this in the book of Mark. Part of what Christ means to do in the Great Commission is not merely to see people believe on his name and be saved. That's a central part. But it is that all authorities, principalities, powers, thrones, dominions will be put under the feet of the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Notice that in Jesus's ministry, every time he walks into a household or every time he walks onto an island, the demons are the first ones to confront him because he's cleaning house. Jesus said, he's the strong man that has come in and bound the strong man of the house. So he's come into the demonic realm and he's begun to bind the strong man. And now he's going to refill the house. He's sweeping out all the evil spirits and he's going to fill that house, you and I, with the Holy Spirit. That's his work. And now the church continues this work the dominion over the spiritual realm. As people people confess Christ, they also renounce Satan and all of his works. These things go hand in hand. It's always been this way since the beginning of the church. We renounce the works of darkness and we proclaim and confess Christ. And in doing so, the spiritual works of darkness begin to be put under Christ's feet. They have no dominion. Number two is new tongues. What do the tongues represent? Now, this is going to take a little bit longer, but it's important to note. I believe that the Gift of tongues does many things, but one of the primary things is it represents Christ's dominion over the physical realm. All things in the physical are under Christ's dominion as well. And the physical realm is ruled by words. You ever heard the the line, the pen is mightier than the sword? Um, All of the ancients, all powerful empires have understood that the world is ruled not by the sword, but by the words particularly by the word. It's why Christianity begins with God said, let there be light. And there was light, the authority and the dominions in the words. And then of course, as we carry on to the gospels, John starts by telling us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh. Christ, the logos is the central authority in the world. But even empires understood that if you controlled languages, you controlled people. This is Pretty clear early on, early empires would do things like take, uh, new, take control of new nations with different languages and they would tell them, you can no longer speak your language, you only speak our language. And the reason for this was to consolidate power. If you had many different languages underneath your empire, they could potentially conspire against you. They could start groups up. They could start revolutions against you, and you would be none the wiser because you don't speak their language. So they would snuff out old languages, and they'd force you into one singular language. It was an exercise of power. In Genesis 11, all of humanity, the Bible tells us, was gathered in the plains of Shinar, and they all had one language. They gathered together, and they wanted to build a tower to the heavens to defy God. It was called Babel. And to ensure that their name was remembered post-flood, they were going to accomplish this great feat of building this tower and city. The project quickly turned to tyranny. And extra-biblical sources most say that Nimrod was the leader of this and he began to enslave everyone, including pregnant women, to build this tower to the heavens. Now, at Pentecost, what follows... Is that all the nations are gathered together in Jerusalem? Because you remember how Babel ended, right? As God confused the languages. But at Pentecost, all the nations are gathered together in Jerusalem. I challenge you to go read this, by the way, in Acts chapter 2. It lists out the nations. They're all gathered together in Jerusalem, and this sign is given to the Christians particularly. The sign is new tongues. And they begin to preach the gospel. And two miracles happen. One is that they give these miraculous new language that they're able to preach. But also, and in particular, all the different people hear them in their own language. They hear the gospel being preached in their own language. Everyone's able to understand the words. Christ establishes his dominion over the entirety of the physical kingdom by unifying the languages. And how does he unify it? Through the logos. The message of the gospel is the message of the word, the word. And it goes out. Now notice the difference between that and Babel. Those people will go back to their nations and they will still have their own languages. What will unify them, though, with the Christians of the other places? The word. There is diversity that's maintained within Christ's kingdom. And the unification is the logos, the word. If you've ever been in an international mission trip, you know this. There's something that happens when you go across the world and you meet up with other Christians and you realize there's a kinship between you that you can't explain. Even though you might have different languages, the one word unites you. And it unites you as family, it unites you in a in a more real way than anything else that can unite you because the word Jesus Christ is the unifying language, the gospel. It brings the people of God together under one name. Now remember in Genesis 11, God didn't come down at Babel and say, "This is ridiculous. You guys can't build a tower to the heavens. You're never going to get there." No, actually what God said is They have one language and their mind is set. Nothing will be impossible to them. We better confuse their languages. Now, this is, of course, a judgment from God, but it's also a great act of mercy. If God had permitted them to continue in this task, they would have spent all of their time trying to become gods themselves, build a name for themselves in rebellion, and ultimately they would have been destroyed again, just like the flood of Noah. Instead, God confuses their languages and scatters them abroad so that Yes, there will be one kingdom that's built. There will be one king. There will be one language. There will be one unification. You know what it is? Jesus Christ will have his kingdom. Babel will not be that kingdom. And Jesus is revealing that kingdom at Pentecost in the Tower of Babel story. Now, what about serpents and poison? Serpents and poison are a representation of Christ's dominion over all of the enemies of God. Serpents are always used as a symbol of the enemy of God. You see this in the garden, right? Serpent and Eve, but it's continued throughout. And there's some weird historical stuff about this too, isn't it? Like the pharaohs, they wore turbans and what was on the front of the turban? The cobra. It's kind of weird. I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, like Aladdin, Jafar. This is kind of, you know, uh, it's not just cartoons. It's weird in history. This happens consistently. Serpents are used oftentimes as an antagonist uh, to the Lord And Jesus says, serpents and poison won't affect my followers. What is he saying? The enemies of God will be put under his feet. Or in other words, a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman being, of course, Christ. And then who are the descendants of Christ? All who believe on his name. The seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, meaning that now all of the enemies of God will have no effect on the people of God. Now, does that mean that there weren't, of course, there were still martyrs, but what did Jesus tell his disciples? Do not fear the man that can kill the body, but fear him who can kill both the body and the soul. See, the, the early church understood it was the blood of the martyrs that were the seeds of revival in the church, that the more that they did this to the, the Christians, the more that the church grew and expanded, the kingdom would just blow up as they continued to persecute Christians. And then lastly, we see this idea of healing and sickness. What is this? Well, it's the, it's the last domino. It's the dominion that Christ has over, over all of the effects of sin, even its very presence. Jesus shows us these little glimpses. When, we were, when you see healings, you know that, listen, you and I have, our days are numbered. Um, even if we're healed, we'll still have our day where we're, if the Lord tarries, we're, we're going to die one day. But these healings are moments of reminders that Christ's ultimate plan, the culmination of his kingdom is that we will never be sick again. He has the power to end the effects of sin forever. The very presence of sin will be gone in his kingdom. And that's what healing is. It's these little glimpses into eternity, these little glimpses of the coming kingdom, the culmination of the kingdom. Now, why did I want to spend time on this? Here's why. Friends, you and I need to have a greater vision for the, New Testament church and what it means to fulfill the Great Commission. What are you and I meant to be doing as Christians? Is it just going to church? Is it just staying out of trouble? You know, watching our mouth. Don't smoke too much or at all. Don't drink too much or at all. Don't make those weird off-color jokes at work. I mean, listen, some of that's a real good start. It's got to be bigger than that. Christ has made us emissaries and ambassadors of a cosmic battle that is being waged. And you and I have been enlisted into this. This is the greatest enlistment story the Bible really the world has ever seen. The king of all creation has said now you're going to be my people go out as my ambassadors and you've got things to do. And it's even bigger than just preaching the gospel, even though that's the centerpiece. It's about dominion over of creation in the name of Christ. And we do not exercise dominion over creation in the same manner in which Jesus told us, the Gentiles do, or or the non-believer does. We do it as Christ would have us do. Spiritual, physical, the question we should be asking is, have you joined Jesus in his work of redemption because he's still working today? I don't want to make that case before I close. One of the travesties of modern theology is how little we discuss this portion of the gospel story. We talk about the death of Jesus, talk about the life of Jesus, we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but we rarely talk about the ascension of Jesus. I want to read to you this passage, verse 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Can we agree that's absolutely ridiculously incredible? He just stopped talking to them and floated to heaven while they watched and went and sat at the right hand of God. The Bible records that he just starts to ascend The book of Acts says the disciples are so baffled by it, they just stare at the sky for a long time until the angels have to come and tell them, hey, you know, he's going to come back the same way that he left. Shouldn't you go and do what he told you to do? They are so dumbfounded by this act. We rarely ever talk about this. Jesus just floated into the heavens. And then it says they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. A few things. And the reason I think this is important is I believe it will help the remedy of our unbelief in our human heart. We have to develop a true understanding of the world the Bible tells us that we live in, not our culture tells us, or we've been taught since we were young. What does the Bible say about the world we live in? Number one, you and I do not live in a religiously neutral world. That's a lie that's been told to you perhaps for a very long time, that you live in a religiously neutral country, where most of us are, you know, just most of the country secular, which just means that it's neutral. Everybody can have their own beliefs and it's no really uh, big deal. Listen to me. Secularism is not neutral. Secularism is a religion that has a God at the center, namely man. It's one of the more deadly systems where man becomes a God in his own eyes and then he gets to dictate the laws. But it is not a neutral world that you guys live in, you and I live in. We live in a spiritual world religious world. It's always been the fundamental questions. Number two, life is a spiritual battle being waged at the soul level. Life is not mostly material and sometimes spiritual. That's what we've been uh, doctrinated to believe. Like life is mostly material until we watch a scary movie and we have a bad dream. And sometimes the spiritual breaks through in our bad dreams. And like, oh, maybe we aren't alone in the universe. So then we think maybe ET's real or you know, th- this is not the real, real life. Life is a massive spiritual battle that's happening and being waged even at the physical level. The Bible tells us this. We don't take the Bible at its word because we would rather be culturally accepted by the world and become friends with the world than, than we would actually be friends of God. But we, we don't want to seem in, uh, anti-intellectual or silly. And in reality, the Bible is very clear about the spiritual nature of the battle that you and I are in. And then lastly, of course, um, Christianity is not primarily a privileged group of the largest religion in the world. It is the largest religion in the world as a fulfillment of Christ's prophecy and his kingship. However, we're told oftentimes that it's mostly just a large group of privileged people. Christianity, according to all statistics, Open Doors USA has this uh, readily available for every single year, is the single most persecuted religious group in the entire world. 350 million Christians suffer from high persecution worldwide. That's one in seven Christians. Last year, listen to me, 5,621 Christians were killed for their faith. Last year. So I know we talk a lot about the martyrs. 5,621 Christians were killed for the fact that they were Christians. So, you know, we, we tend to think all oh, that that could never happen. That's because you and I live in a country where that's not the case. These are just statistics that are given every single year by an advocacy organization that goes around the world and finds these government numbers about people's deaths. 2,110 churches were attacked last year. Do you want to tell you what's crazy and that most of us don't even know because it it was mostly not covered by the media? Hundreds of those churches were in Canada, destroyed last year. That's right, the top hat of America, very close to you, destroyed last year. 4,542 Christians were detained and jailed last year, many of which are still in jail today. So when you read passages about persecution, you read passages about not, not forgetting those who were in jail, you and I think, oh man, that must be, so, You know, way back then it must have been tough to be a Christian. No, friends, right now, right now that's a reality. Your, your brothers and sisters in Christ are in jail for the reason that they are Christian. And you know why this is the case? Because we're in a spiritual battle. This is not merely a physical battle. There are animating evil, demonic spirits that hate the message of the gospel. And the same way that Paul and Silas represented a great threat to those demonic powers that no longer have the authority, and they threw Paul and Silas in jail, it still happens all across the world. But we've been culled into this understanding that that's just not true, that mostly Christianity is just a privileged class of people who whine about being persecuted, but never are. It's not a fact. The reason I want to note this is not mostly to belabor the point or to commiserate together. No, I, I, I make this point because I want us to get shake out of these lies. Number one, that religion is just an optional side dish for most of the world. That's not the case. That the secular worldview is dominant and, and that that worldview is neutral on the issue of God. That you know that we've got this privileged class of Christian people who just keep talking about it, and it doesn't really need to be talked about. The truth is, religion is not a sideshow; it is the universal question of humanity since the beginning, and it always will be. Who is God, and who are we in light of that? That's a human question. It's fundamental. Every single culture of all time has grappled with that question, and you and I live in a unique culture where we've been entertained into into this weird pseudo-reality state where we don't think about it much or think that other people don't think about it much. No, All of humanity has asked these questions. Why are you here? Who is God? Who are you in light of that? What's the purpose? These are fundamental questions. Secularism says, no, that's just an optional. It's like going to the desert menu or the dessert aisle at Golden Corral after you've already gorged yourself. You don't really have to do that. No, friends. It's the central thing. It's the meat and potatoes of life is the religious question about who God is. And then, of course, the idea that secularism is, just this relig- is not a religious worldview is absolutely asinine and insane. It's one of the most fundamental early Christian, uh, it's one of the early worldviews that are pagan, namely that man can become a god. It's the garden worldview. And so at its bottom, it is going to be antagonistic towards Christianity. At its bottom, secularism always will be antagonistic towards Christianity because we claim that Christ is king and that man is not. We claim that Christ is Lord, which means man must submit. That is at total fundamental odds with the God of our age. And so there will be pushback with that. Now, of course, my case is that the aim has been from the conquered powers of this world. And I don't mean that physical, I mean spiritual. The conquered powers of Satan, the aim has been to blind Christians to the reality of who God is and who they are to blind them from the reality that Christ is king and he has given us authority, power, and dominion and instead keep us in this cold state. Have you ever watched these? There's cartoons about this, right? There's old, old uh, children's movies where you have the prince who is his, his father's the king and his father's killed and there's a coup that happens and the prince get, gets exiled out and then he just kind of loses sight of who he is and he ends up being a slave boy who comes back to that kingdom and then finds out, you know, wait a minute, I actually, the guy who's the king, who's a total jerk always, is actually not the king, like he killed my dad. This is the reality for many of us who must wake up that the truth about who we are as children of God, as Christians, is that Christ is king. He has given us authority. Many who operate under this neutral worldview of secularism have sought to dethrone Christ and, do, and then they've taken the throne for themselves. We have to see. no, this is actually not how it was ever meant to be. Christ is reigning. Christ is king. We should bolster ourselves in this through the glorious truth of the ascension. Listen to this quote from Patrick Schreiner. He's a professor at Midwestern Seminary. Listen to what the ascension should mean for us. He says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but the Messiah's ascension determines its finale. The ascension culminated Christ's earthly work, and it marks a shift and a climax in the Messiah's three Key roles. It not only confirms Christ's work, but it continues Christ's work. That's key. He once labored on earth. Now he labors in heaven. Jesus did not simply come to earth to conquer. He ascended to the right hand of the father to receive his rightful rule. In doing this, his work as king culminates and continues, culminates and continues. Kings sit down and are installed to do what? In order to rule. Christ arrived as the prophet who delivered God's word. He performed signs and wonders and possessed the spirit on the earth. He fulfilled the old covenant by being the anointed prophet. However, he has also promised a time when he would leave and this prophetic task would continue and also be transferred to who? To his people. It's not that he would not be involved. He would simply be involved in a different way after his ascent into heaven. How is Christ involved in a different way in his ministry at the right hand of the Father than he was on the earth? Well, here's what the Bible tells us. Look at verse 20. They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Hear me. You and I are saved not because God worked with us, but because he worked for us. Christ died for us. Christ was perfect for us in our place, for our sins, all his work. You and I didn't do anything. Okay, this is the gospel. The gospel is it's a free gift. No one earned it. No one can boast Christ for us on our behalf. But sanctification, how about this? Obedience. Now that we are born again, the Bible is very clear that Christ ascends to the right hand of God and he works with us in this work of extending and expanding his domain and his dominion and his rule. You and I have been invited to work with King Jesus. Now I've used a joke about this and I'll, I'll use it again because my son's in the kids ministry and he won't listen to the podcast. When we're young Christians, that's like when I offer my son to come help me with mowing the lawn and he's really little and he sits on my lap and mostly makes it hard to turn, squirms around and makes it a very frustrating job, but at least we're together. That's what you and I do with the Lord Jesus when he invites us on when we're young Christians, we don't do a lot of helping. We stumble around, you know, we make the job a little bit more arduous But you know what happens as Jonas has gotten older? Is there stuff that he actually really helps with? Like he's learned and he's grown, he's matured. He's grown as a image bearer, you know, he bears my image in this way. And he, and he, and he does a better job. He actually can go get the trash and bring it back in. And I don't even have to go with him now. Unless it's dark, in which case he gets a little scared. (laughs) You, as you mature in Christ, you begin to look more like Jesus. He begins to entrust you with more you are a part of this enlistment. Not that, listen, Christ never leaves us or we would not have the power to accomplish it, but he works with us and in us and through us. He commissions us, he calls us to join him. The question is will we join him? Will we believe and obey? You see, the message of the gospel that you and I carry is not that. Jesus will reign eternally in his kingdom if you and I could just go out and convince enough people to believe in him, like just get a critical mass. Like we're just, you know, like building a communist revolution. We just need enough people to believe in the utopia and then it'll change everything. Listen, Christ is not like Tinkerbell in that he needs you to believe so he can survive. Not like Santa Claus so that you believe and therefore his sleigh flies. He does reign right now. Even if you and I were never involved in it, he reigns. If you and I reject him, it would not change his reign in Iota but break his heart, but not the rod of iron that he rules with. He reigns. Right now, Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father as an exclamation point certifying that very reign. Now, why is this important? Because the power is his. Friends, when you and I meet hardship, here's the question we should ask. Is Christ still reigning? If he is, we're going to be fine. When you find yourself worried about your wayward child struggling is Christ still reigning is Christ where you can go to sleep now Christ still reigns when you and I are, are shedding tears and we're mourning the question is is Christ still reigning if he is then we have great hope when unbelief seeks to take a foothold in our hearts the question that we should ask each and every time is does Christ still reign and if yes then we will be fine And more importantly, we should join him. We should join him. We pray because he is able at the right hand of God to do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. We preach because he is able to save to the uttermost anyone who calls upon his name. We worship because we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that if all of the walls of the kingdoms of earth were to crumble down, the kingdom that you and I have received will never crumble. Christ reigns. And because he reigns, we can be sure that the citizenship that we have in the kingdom of heaven cannot be taken from us. It's ours forever because Christ has won it. Let me pray for us and then I'll lead us in the Lord's table. Father, we ask now that you would broaden our vision of what it means to be evangelists. Yes, we want to share your gospel, but God, help us to be about the business of redeeming and restoring all of creation. Help us to see our jobs even in light of the Great Commission, our families in light of the Great Commission, our marriages in light of the Great Commission, our parenting, our friendships, every area and facet of our lives. Help us to see with physical and spiritual eyes. Give us what we do not have, my God. Where we lack, we pray for your help. Where we fear, we pray for your courage. Where we're distracted, we pray for your focus. Where we're weak, we pray for your strength. Where we're easily deceived, we pray for your confidence, for your certainty, for your discernment. And as we take of your supper now, we pray that you would satisfy to the very depths of our souls. Not with a wafer and juice, but with the body and blood that you shed for us, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.